Hi, I'm Ryan McClure. And I'm Justin Zyduck. And welcome to Indefensible Inc., the podcast where we take a look at some allegedly terrible comics and comics-related media. Today, second part of a two-part look at Onslaught, a 1996 crossover that launched in the X-Men books and spread to many of the other titles Marvel was publishing at the time. Because this story is so massive, we're reading curated highlights recently collected in a 2020 edition called X-Men Milestones Onslaught. So the main arc of the story involves the X-Men teaming up with the Avengers and Fantastic Four to fight Onslaught, an evil psychic entity made up of the combined essences of X-Men founder Professor Charles Xavier and their arch enemy Magneto. So many creators worked on the various books, but the primary writers are X-Men scripters Scott Lobdell and Mark Wade, with key issues penciled by Andy Kubert, Adam Kubert, and Joe Madureira. So previously in Onslaught, the X-Men learned that some kind of super powerful being known as Onslaught had apparently taken control of Professor Xavier. This being first seemed bent on destroying humanity because Professor X's dream of mutant-human coexistence had come to seem unachievable due to recent actions on humanity's part. At first, Jean Grey and the other X-Men thought Onslaught was the manifestation of Professor X's dark side, or that Magneto was maybe controlling him, since Onslaught looks a heck of a lot like a giant mech version of Magneto. The X-Men and other mutants like Cable, an alternate reality refugee X-Man, along with the Avengers and Fantastic Four, set out to stop him. Also fighting alongside the X-Men was Joseph, who was actually a de-aged version of Magneto, who had previously had his memories wiped out by Professor X. And uh, the Fantastic Four in particular were brought into the fray since Invisible Woman and Mr. Fantastic's son, Franklin, is a mutant who is a target of Onslaught due to his very powerful psychic abilities. Onslaught managed to capture Franklin Richards. Meanwhile, Wolverine found out that Onslaught is actually the product of a merging of Professor X's dark side and Magneto's psyche brought about by the action of Professor X mind-wiping Magneto. So we'll pick up today's coverage with X-Men number 55 by Mark Wade and Andy Kubert. Um, assuming that you listened to the previous episode, and if you haven't, probably makes sense to do that now. The first issue that we covered in Onslaught, the one-shot Onslaught X-Men, had a at the end a Sentinel factory comes online, and the uh, robots say Onslaught's name. Um, this is where that actually finally pays off, and the issue opens with a whole fleet of the mutant hunting robots the size of buildings under Onslaught's control. They cut off Manhattan from the rest of the world, and mostly just sort of seem to be here to give the heroes something to do without confronting Onslaught directly. Um, and a lot of the tie-in issues are pretty much just like, you know, Spider-Man fighting a bunch of Sentinels. <laughs> you gotta have, like, the the minor bad guys leading up to the boss of each level. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the Sentinels are the undercard. Uh, but yeah, we get a big double-page spread of the X-Men, Avengers, and Fantastic Four. And honestly, it's it's a pretty satisfying moment because in the uh, previous issues, we've had just issue after issue of the various combinations of heroes splitting up, scrambling around on little side quests, trying to stop Onslaught before he gets going. And now that it's all sort of hit the fan, everyone is assembled in one place. Because this is a crossover drawn by many different people, get a lot of irregularities that we'll be bringing up. In particular, uh, Sue Richards looks like she's gotten a haircut 
uh, since the last time she appeared, and um, then uh, extensions in the next issue that she'll appear in. We get a little recap of how the Avengers and their amazing friend Gambit found Rogue and the de-aged Magneto, a.k.a. Joseph, and how Onslaught kidnapped Franklin Richards. This sets off an argument between the Human Torch and Iceman that, as far as I can tell, exists mostly for them to show off their novelty word balloons. Um, I've mentioned this before, but in the mid-90s, it was sort of the dawn of computer lettering, and all the early adopters really wanted to show off their different fonts and word balloon shapes. Uh, the Human Torch has an orangey flaming balloon, which I guess is supposed to evoke like a crackling fire or something. Uh, but Iceman has a blue ice balloon, and like I'm not sure what that sounds like. Like, what is the sound of cold? Is it like a, mm. I, like I guess, a hollow? Yeah, just like devoid of human emotion and <laughs> and uh, feeling, and I don't know. So while we ponder that. Uh, Joseph is surveying the devastation and can't imagine what kind of person would do this. Um, Rogue tells him it's a lost soul or a man driven to desperate measures. And Gambit, who, uh, as we established last time, is super jealous of all the attention that Rogue is showing Joseph, but is trying not to let on, is lurking about and thinks that like, maybe she's talking about Magneto as much as she's talking about Xavier. Uh, Captain America orders different squads of heroes to take care of different parts of the city, while Mr. Fantastic leads some of the uh, more sciencey heroes to build a weapon and a tracker. On the astral plane, Franklin has finally figured out that his new friend Charlie is an avatar for Onslaught and wants to escape. Onslaught compels Franklin to use his reality warping powers to build him a citadel. Cut back to the Blackbird, the X-Men's jet, heading for New York City. Uh, the X-Men reflect on how hard it's going to be to fight someone they've considered like a father to them. And they give some more recap about the Xavier Protocols, which are basically a list of, that Professor X drew up of how to kill every X-Men uh, member in case you need to. It gets sort of repetitive in a collection like this, all the recapping, but it really was helpful at the time um, for me. When this came out, this was actually the first part of the storyline that I owned, and I feel like it got me right up to speed because none of the comics that we covered last time uh, seemed to have a whole lot of new information that made this issue make more sense. Mm -hmm. um, so either that's a really good recap or like the plot of Onslaught so far has been so thin that you can reasonably summarize it in about two or three word balloons. Yeah. It's just, it kind of surprises me that it took them so long to realize that just like throwing in a one page uh, text recap of what's happened in previous issues, which they do now. Like yeah. It took them so long to figure that out. And so they had to just achieve it by dialogue with like awkward exposition for so long yeah i think the, i think the idea was that like kids aren't going to want to read a big wallet text on the first page but uh, now there's no kids okay. reading comics so it's, so it's fine <laughs> so giant man iron man bishop and the richards are trying to cobble together some franklin proof armor which they salvage from reed richards's uh, weird time traveling dad uh no more needs to be said on him right now uh, but they have no defense against Xavier. Fortunately, Cyclops is carrying those uh, armor, like psychic armor designs from Excalibur number 100, even though the designs for it in this issue look nothing like they did in that issue. Uh, the heroes fight some sentinels throughout the city. Rogue and Joseph team up to tackle one, and Gam Gambit saves them from a different one. Um, and here Gambit finally comes out with it and says that everything that's happening right now is Joseph slash Magneto's fault. All three of them start sort of an argument until 
Iceman uh, rolls up and breaks it up, saying, Archie, Betty, Veronica, heads up. And um, Mark Wade would actually go on to write Archie comics. So I, I always enjoy, like, when they make an Archie, and they, like, a reference to something like this, and then, like, they end up going to do the thing. Like, you watch mm-hmm. Buffy, and somebody mentions Captain America, and be like, hey, Joss Whedon went on to do a Captain America movie. Yeah. Uh, then in Central Park, Onslaught's Citadel materializes. He addresses the Homo sapiens in the world, saying mutants will no longer be oppressed. And then he detonates an electromagnetic pulse blast that creates a wave of destruction and knocks out power to the island. It also fries the android Vision, uh, Iron Man's armor, and a bunch of stuff that Reed Richards was working on. And the uh, X-Men jet Blackbird goes down in a fiery crash. Joseph emerges from the wreckage and reflects that Onslaught pretty much wiped them out all in his opening move, and they're at his mercy. And there's also a sort of a weird button on the issue where Ozymandias, who is a sort of henchman of Apocalypse, seems to be compelled to, like, sculpt great turning points in history. And there's this whole monologue about, like, he how he surprises himself by sculpting sort of a prophecy vision of Onslaught, like, standing on the wreckage of the world. So, like, I'm, <clears throat> I'm not a professional comics writer, but, like... I feel like a better a better cliffhanger for the issue might have been like the X-Men's jet crashing, you know, in a fiery explosion rather than mm-hmm. like this weird guy sculpted a statue that was so weird that it freaked him himself out. <laughs> but <laughs> that's me. That's yeah. the 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 amateur opinion. I think it was just the everybody in that time period was like looking for any uh appearance of Ozymandias and just waiting <laughs> for for him to pop up. So we next join the X-Men in Uncanny X-Men 336. Franklin Richards is trapped inside Onslaught's mind or consciousness or something. Uh, I guess it's kind of the astral plane if you want to get technical. Um, He's trying to get a catatonic Professor X to help him. Meanwhile, the Watcher and Apocalypse are kicking back, watching the chaos in New York as people try to survive the aftermath of Onslaught's EMP and an ongoing Sentinel attack. Um, Makes you wonder why the EMP didn't seem to affect the Sentinels, but (laughs) apparently that's... uh, We'll just hand wave that as Onslaught's power. Mm -hmm. Watcher muses that Onslaught seems to be the next step in uh, evolution... Yeah, uh, repeating my criticism from last episode about we're getting a lot of telling that Onslaught is this sort of next-level, worst-ever, world-ending threat. Um, I mean, an EMP blast is a big deal, but like we haven't seen a whole lot of evidence of him being like the next link in the chain of you know potential or whatever. Yeah, so Watcher and Apocalypse are just kind of serving as his hype men for right now, <laughs> talking him up. But meanwhile, on the streets, Human Torch... Iceman, Hawkeye, and Reed and Sue Richards meet up. Reed says that he's getting readings to test out some theory he has about Onslaught, while Sue says she's going to join the others in trying to rescue her son, Franklin. Uh, She has a very kind of hetero male pandering costume at this moment, which was kind of the trend for her in the 90s. She's got a costume where the Fantastic Four logo is basically perfectly conforming to her left breast. Um, so it's kind of 
it's kind of weird. Yeah, it's a weird one. I mean, she also yeah earlier in the decade she had the four centered on the chest and cut out to make sort of a cleavage window. Yep. Um, she's not not uh, doing so well in the nineties. <laughs> no. And from a fashion perspective. Uh, meanwhile, Joseph, aka Magneto, tries to rescue some civilians using his magnetic powers. But they start calling him evil and such, remembering Magneto's uh, former criminal days. But he's rescued by Gambit. And I'm sorry for keeping keep pointing this out, but uh, since last issue, Gambit has apparently swapped out his floor-length trench coat for a lighter and I think maybe more sensible waist-length jacket. So, mm-hmm. they, I, I guess on, on the Blackbird they got a you know a small wardrobe. That's that makes sense. Joseph starts saying that from the sounds of it, he was a pretty horrible person in the time period he can't remember and is kind of getting down on himself. But Gambit actually reassures him by saying he's not necessarily responsible for what's going on now and that we all have sins in our past we need to atone for. Really kind of like indirect opposition from like what Gambit like just said last issue. Like last issue, he was like, mm-hmm. this is all your fault. And now it's like, ah, it's fine. So <laughs> Gambit's yeah. a Gambit's a capricious soul, you know. Yeah. Uh so either he had a change of heart or uh somebody didn't read the previous issue before writing this one up. Yep, the, the art doesn't match up, the story doesn't match up. This is all this is all sort of hastily stitched together and you can you can really see it. Uh, but in any case it does make Rogue come around on Gambit again. She comes down and they share a hug. Uh I don't remember why they kind of broke up in the first place, but again, that's not really important to this story. <laughs> okay, that the, the explanation makes... for pretty much anything is because he's Gambit. <laughs> Are we going to circle back to Gambit as the X trainer? He totally is. Now, now that now they're lulled into a false sense of security about him, this is the time oh, okay. for Gambit to strike. It's the long con. Back at Fantastic Four headquarters, Reed is analyzing some data, and an injured Iron Man pledges to build the anti-psychic armor despite his wounds. And uh, Jean Grey has this moment where she's thinking about how she's in awe of Reed, calling him the father of modern superheroes. So it's sort of nice playing up that the, you know, Fantastic Four and Avengers are supposed to be a big deal in their world, even though... uh, their books are all getting canceled at the end of this crossover because no one is buying them in the real world. Yeah, and the fact that like they get shunted off to Liefeld and, and Lee to reboot them and make them edgier for the 90s, it's like, this feels a little bit like kind of patronizing to, <laughs> yeah. to them. It's like, Okay, old old man, we're gonna we're gonna put you in the home now. Yep, but you were no irrelevant. Uh, yep, you got a you got a lot of you got a lot of achievement. Yeah, you know you got a lot you can be should be proud of. So mm-hmm. you sort of rest on on those laurels. <laughs> but back at Onslaught Citadel, which was uh, which was formerly Central Park, Onslaught says that by merging with Fra- Franklin Richards' mind, he's growing even more powerful. Again, he says that. <laughs> yep. Uh, he hasn't quite backed it up yet, but uh, inside Onslaught, Professor X finally awakens from his catatonia. Uh, it's a little—I'm a little unclear because it seems like Professor X is both like in his consciousness, but also kind of physically inside 
onslaught does that track yeah i mean i there's a lot of points in previous issues and in this issue where it's like it's not really like because the astral plane is apparently like a physical visual place there it's not really clear at any time where anybody who has psychic powers actually like literally physically is okay so i yeah i've I've been spending the whole time just going like they're in onslaught land wherever (laughs) whatever that means Mm mm-hmm so Professor X warns Franklin not to trust Onslaught, which even being a small child, kind of Franklin's starting to figure out on his own. Uh, still, Onslaught takes Franklin away deeper into his mind or the astral plane, I think. Uh, Onslaught now has this weird metal face that kind of resembles Ultron. Yeah. I mean, but Franklin ma- manages to figure out that, he's a, that Onslaught is a bad guy, but I feel like it's not... That huge stretch for a kid to think that the 20-foot armored monster with giant teeth growing out of his metal face is uh, maybe the bad guy in this in this little drama. You would, you would, you would think that um, Reed and Sue would definitely have like a stranger danger conversation, especially right. people with metal faces. Yeah, metal faces, avoid them. Um, hot tip, uh, if people are wearing secondary colors, a lot of purples and greens, that's usually bad. <laughs> mm-hmm. So he, he's figuring it out, figuring it out, finally. And we get an assortment of X-Men, Avengers, and Fantastic Four members uh, watching as Joseph, a.k.a. Magneto, shows up to attack Onslaught. And Onslaught threatens to kill Professor X, saying he no longer needs the mutant's physical body at this point. Joseph, his powers augmented by the mutant Cable makes a small crack in Onslaught's armor. Cyclops then blasts it full power, and an invisible woman uses her force field to push the crack wider. Uh, Thor then smashes his hammer through Onslaught and rescues Professor X's physical body from inside him. The omniscient narrator speculates that this should mean Onslaught's destruction, but nope, as he said, he no longer needs Professor X's body and is basically fine. Onslaught uses his powers combined with Franklin's to unleash another blast. Invisible Woman manages to shield the present heroes, then begs Professor X to use his powers to reach out to her son. He says his powers presently and perhaps permanently no longer function. Elsewhere, Watcher and Apocalypse seem to agree that this is getting out of hand and Onslaught's getting too powerful. Apocalypse says, what is to be done? And the Watcher shows him a holographic projection of Cable. Uh, that is the the character, not like a, a <laughs> HBO program or something. Um, and says to him, I believe you already know the answer. This brings us to Cable number 35 by Jeff Loeb and Ian Churchill. You know, you made it sound like co-hosting a comics podcast was going to be fun and we'll have a lot of laughs. And then like two years, almost two years later, I'm summarizing an issue of Cable written by Jeff Loeb. Beautiful Sunday morning. <laughs> I feel it's, it's all been leading up to this. <laughs> well, uh, we open with some pontificating by the Watcher. But after that, we open on Cable uh, and Susan Richards, the Invisible Woman. Um, Cable, of course, is sort of, he's <laughs> Cyclopses and 
a clone of Jean Grey's son, who is also a cyborg and was sent back to the future and comes back as a soldier. That is the history of Cable. Um, Cable is messed up in this issue. Um, he looked pretty normal at the end of the Uncanny X-Men issue that we just summarized. And I don't think any time has been meant to pass, but like, right, immediately, like, immediately half of his body is now like a crazy liquid metal blade thing with wires and his arms about four feet long and covered in metal claws. Mm-hmm. Um, Cable explains to the Invisible Woman, if you are as confused about this as I was, uh, that he has a techno-organic virus that converts his body into living machinery. And because of all the weird psychic stuff that's going on, he's not able to keep it in check with his psychic powers. Um, he also suggests that he, Cable, and uh, the Invisible Woman's son, Franklin, represent the next generation of X-Men and Fantastic Four, respectively. There's a, just as a sort of aside, there's a really painful lettering correction in this panel, where whatever was originally written in the computer lettering was like whited out and written by somebody in a pen with hastily. So it's always, it's always sort of surprising when that happens because, like, you know, you're at a company where people are professional letterers. You think you wouldn't just, like, give it to, you know, Dave in the mailroom. Yeah. You're like, I got <laughs> – just write these two sentences, Dave. And Cable's like, I have to go down. My planet needs <laughs> right. me. Yeah, it is sort of like if you were watching, like, Avengers Endgame and just, like, in just one shot, Iron Man was made entirely out of, like, cardboard. <laughs> and then the next one, it's fine. It's like, wait, what? How did you? How did that get through? But uh, anyway, Apocalypse suddenly shows up. Um, instinctively and almost uncontrollably, Cable attacks him because Apocalypse is his arch nemesis, also in the, from the future. Uh, but Apocalypse tells him to knock it off because he's figured out a way to separate Franklin Richards from Onslaught. Cable assumes that he's lying, but Sue decides they have to take a chance, even if it means making a deal with the devil. Apocalypse figures that Onslaught is invulnerable on the astral plane, but needs Cable's help to access it. Cable agrees, citing that, once again, uh, quote, once again, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, because, I guess, in the future, he was raised by uh, Star Trek II, the Wrath of Khan fans. You could do a lot worse, I suppose. Well, uh, there was that, that um, X-Men Star Trek crossover novel. Oh, right. <laughs> so I assume that is canon in his future. Yeah, Cable, yeah, Cable went along on that and really impressed by the Vulcan philosophy. Uh, Cable tells Sue that she can't come with them, but promises to uh, take care of Franklin. Uh, we cut to the astral plane, which we've been talking about. It's sort of a, um, if you have ever listened to a Moody Blues album, you'll know that it's a groovy, psychedelic, psychic landscape. Uh, Cable uses his telepathy to fix the damage from the techno-organic virus, and he no longer looks like the T-1000 getting like, going out of control. Um, Apocalypse offers to cure him of the techno-organic virus, but Cable takes the stance of, I've lived with it this long, I'll just deal with it. Which is sort of a dumb principled stand to take when your body is being taken over by a machine virus, I guess. Yeah, I'm surprised in the previous issues we didn't see him running around saying, that's not as bad as the flu. Don't, <laughs> don't worry about it. Yeah, uh, Doctors are being encouraged to diagnose people with techno-organic virus. <laughs> Drive <laughs> up their quotas. Uh, Cable and Apocalypse travel to Onslaught's headquarters on the astral plane and attack him, but Onslaught creates psionic projections of Magneto, the Hulk, and the villain Post. Um, in case you missed us talking about it last time, Post really got the short end of the stick when they were giving out 
random 90s noun codenames. Mm-hmm. Although, it, it, I was thinking it could be worse because Jean Grey in the 90s didn't even get a dumb 90s codename. Yeah. She was Jean Grey. Right. Cable fights the projections while Apocalypse reaches out into this sort of womb on Onslaught's back that's holding Franklin. But because Apocalypse reasons that Franklin might pose a threat to him in the future one day uh, to his own schemes, Apocalypse is not going to just free him from Onslaught, but also kill him. But Cable has, of course, anticipated this double cross and counters it with one of his own. Sue Richards has been with them the whole time, but invisible, because remember, the invisible woman. And she stops him from killing her son. Uh, Apocalypse is pretty pissed off about this. He tells him uh, that Cable is being an idiot and that Franklin should be seen as an acceptable loss to get rid of Onslaught. But obviously Cable doesn't see it that way. Apocalypse teleports away in a huff. So Franklin is still, you know, uh, under Onslaught's control. And Sue is pretty distraught, saying that it's almost worse knowing that her son is still alive, but so helpless. Um, but as Cable points out, and so does the omniscient uh, narration, the upshot is that Sue and Cable's actions have actually inspired Franklin to be brave and have some hope for the future. So um, that's nice. Yeah, a little little silver lining. You got to end on a, a bit of hope for the future. I'm feeling good about myself. <laughs> Not uh, about this issue, gonna... but <laughs> feel good about myself. Yeah. It's all going to end well for the Fantastic Four, don't you? <laughs> don't you worry. X-Men 56. So before this issue in a uh, another crossover title, which we're not going anywhere, anywhere near, uh, Onslaught apparently managed to kidnap X-Man, a.k.a. Nate Gray, who is an alternate reality cable. Uh, We open on a sentinel pursuing a human mother and child. They are rescued by Joseph and Rogue. However, the sentinel gets the better of them and is about to zap them both. A blast of energy comes from out of nowhere. They've been saved by Dr. Doom. Doom. He is looking fierce. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. He makes his entrance in typical badass fashion. He starts immediately throwing shade at Onslaught, saying how he's so much more uh, of an evil genius than than this newcomer. And he's also disappointed to find Joseph, aka Magneto, cowering in fear, since he was kind of his he considered him his his peer as an evil genius at one point. He laments how they could have at one point conquered the world together as evil supervillain bros until presumably uh, Dr. Doom betrayed him and, and seized the world for himself. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <but. laughs> that is sort of like the classic Doom thing of like, we could have done this together. And then I would have immediately double crossed you because <laughs> my name is literally mm-hmm. Dr. Doom. But yeah. Yeah. He actually says it into the effect of like, how dare you? Which I guess makes sense because like, Doom and Magneto used to hang out sometimes, so Doom seems mm-hmm. to feel that Magneto no longer wearing the, you know, the cool red and purple armor and the cape and the helmet, and now he just sort of looks like Fabio with white hair. <laughs> it re- it reflects poorly on Doom is the is yeah. the problem here. So Doom is Doom is not having it. Nope. He is there to actually help 
Rogue, Joseph, Captain America, and the other heroes, though, because he essentially wants to make sure there's a world for him to eventually conquer instead of Onslaught. And this is one of my favorite Doom tropes that I think comes up pretty often, where somebody's trying to destroy the world, and he's like, hey, wait a minute, I gotta, like, <laughs> conquer this world, so... I live yeah. on this world, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it happens in, like, the Infinity Gauntlet and stuff, and stories and stuff, too, where it's, like, Doom is sort of, like, an honorary member of the world-saving posse, just because, you, you know, as long as you keep an eye on him, because, again, he will instantly double-cross you know, double cross you once the smoke is cleared. Mm-hmm. He's a helpful guy to have on your side. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he's he's all in it. Joseph talks to Captain America at this point, and he says that if Doom is praising him uh, as for his former... Uh, life as Magneto, he must have a lot of past crimes to atone for. Cap tells him it's not him he should be talking to about atoning, so Joseph goes to talk to the now-freed Professor X. Elsewhere, Onslaught is trying to add the mutant psychic power of the captive Nate Gray to his own, but Nate is resisting him. At this point, Joseph and Professor X are talking as well. Joseph asks Professor X if He's as big a monster as everyone seems to think. Professor X actually blames himself for creating Onslaught and says Joseph was scarred by his childhood when his family was wiped out during a genocide. And he says it's up to Joseph which way his moral trajectory is going to take him in the future. He tells Joseph to join the other heroes and hints that he, Professor X, will play some role in the upcoming fight despite his lack of powers. So this is sort of a through line of the whole Onslaught story, is Joseph wandering around talk, thinking about being Magneto. Um, Mark Wade didn't stay on X-Men very long for reasons that I'll probably get to at the end. So he never really felt comfortable writing the X-Men, but he did seem to be like genuinely invested in this Joseph idea that like if Magneto had no memory of his former crimes, is he still culpable? And how would you feel if you found out that you were this, you know, huge feared monster? So that's sort of, I, I think that's interesting, but um, I don't think later writers wanted to do too much with Joseph. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have no idea what happens to him. Yeah, I, also have, I also have no story. idea why his name is Joseph, but it's... yeah, that's a good question. Mysteries of the X-Men. Um, meanwhile, Onslaught finally breaks down Nate Gray's defenses and sees into his mind. And he sees memories of Nate's alternate reality, the Age of Apocalypse verse. Uh, this is where mutants rule the world only to fight among themselves and destroy it. Onslaught seems mad that the mutants threw away this golden opportunity by infighting and seemingly reconsiders his plan to just wipe out humanity. Elsewhere, Captain America is rallying the remaining members of the Fantastic Four and X-Men. Iron Man has completed that anti-psionic armor we've been hearing about for a while now. Jean Grey realizes that Professor X has gone on his own to confront Onslaught, and she psychically notifies the other X-Men. Nate Grey uh, bumps into Franklin Richards on the astral plane. Neither of them know what to do. But Onslaught has his hands full at the moment with Professor X, who has arrived. And he tells Professor X that he's had a change of plan. Now he's realizing that mutants are 
capable of being just as venal and petty as humans, so he's just going to go ahead and wipe out all life on the planet. Yeah, we've sort of given up on any kind of like motivation or plot or theme here. Onslaught is now just like pure angry baby. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so he's gonna he's gonna break all his toys and <laughs> throw a tantrum. Uh, starting with Professor X's hover chair, which he blasts apart, leaving him on the ground. So the final part of the story that we're going to discuss today, the climax, is a one-shot called Onslaught Marvel Universe by Mark Waid and Adam Kubert. Um, and some other artists as well. Um, I actually own the 22 karat gold cover version of this of this issue. I got this when it was newish. Um, it came with a certificate of authenticity, which I lost, <laughs> so I can't prove that it's. Uh, I guess I can't prove that it's authentic, but um, it does have a shiny gold cover. <laughs> um, that makes it impossible to see what the actual art is supposed to be on the cover. It's just a series of shiny bumps. Mm-hmm. Once you open up the very lovely foil, gold foil cover. Uh, you open on the Watcher, standing in the wreckage of New York City, talking in a very funereal tone about how his mission was to observe an age of heroism and how now that job is over. The Watcher flashes us back to the final confrontation between Professor X and Onslaught, uh, where we left them last issue, still yelling at each other. Um, just then, the X-Men blow in. Rogue swoops in to rescue the Professor. Uh, Cyclops's costume is absolutely torn to shreds, in this to sort of communicate that this is like a bad news situation. Um, but Gambit has switched back to his full trench coat. So he's, uh, he's sort of what he's in his, like his like dress uniform heading into the final mm-hmm. battle, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. You want to go out uh, with kind of your personal style intact. Mm-hmm. So like, so they have a fight and you know how this goes by now. The X-Men attack onslaught onslaught attacks X-Men. Nothing really gets accomplished. Um, but when the X-Men are momentarily down, the smoke clears and suddenly everyone is there. The Fantastic Four, um, the Avengers, the Hulk. Uh, continuing a long-standing Marvel crossover tradition, however, nobody invited Daredevil. Yeah, and they even rub this in because they show some of his supporting cast later on. <laughs> yeah. It's just unnecessary. Yeah. Matt Murdock is in his room going, like, I can literally hear if anybody would just say, I wish Daredevil was here. <laughs> but, no, but nobody does. <laughs> He just uh, goes back to eating ice cream. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Onslaught fires a blast that Joseph gets caught up in. Professor X crawls over to drag him to safety, and when he comes to, Joseph is amazed that Charles would selflessly risk his life for someone who's apparently such a bad dude as he was. Um, Professor X ignores the compliment, and Joseph's really just crippling self-pity at this point, <laughs> uh, and says that they need all the help they, that they can get. So I thought this was one of the one of the highlights in terms of like a nice character moment um, between between any of the characters. Yeah. I, I do. I'm always a sucker for like the Charles Magneto friendship. So this kind of had a, a bit of an impact. Yeah, and I do like the idea that like Professor X would see like the younger version of his friend and be like, "Hey, my my friend is back." <laughs> all the yeah. all the bad stuff that happened in the last couple of years. It'll be like if you like met up with like your high school buddy and found that like, Oh, everything is exactly the same as it was. So that's, yeah. that, that's my read on the, the on the Joseph situation. No, yeah. is yeah. Charles Xavier is like, all right, we're 19. We're going to be some, some mad lads out in the town. <laughs> 
But then we cut into Onslaught's mind, or the, you know, again, we're sort of confused as like what the physical space is supposed to be. It's some crazy place where Franklin and X-Man are being held captive. Nate Gray is despairing, uh, but Franklin, as we established in the Cable episode, um, has a newfound sense of hope. Cutting back to the heroes, and um, the middle of the book, the art switches around, presumably because the Cuberts were fallen behind. Uh, Cyclops' costume is now mostly fixed. There's maybe like a tear here and there, but like it's the shirt is intact. Um, I've decided at this point that all the heroes are wearing Venom-like symbiote costumes and just not not worry about the inconsistencies from issue to issue and literally panel to panel at this point. It was the style at the time. Right. <laughs> uh, anyway, Onslaught creates a second sun in the sky. Obviously, that's a big deal. <laughs> it's the it's the, actually it's the first thing that he's done that actually like finally shows some evidence of like oh Onslaught is a really big deal. Mm-hmm. It's like yeah, second sun. That's you know that's respect. You know <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> this is a, evidently a tough guy. He's just been sort of holding his cards pretty close. Um, anyway, the second sun opening up. Uh, prompts a brief argument from Hank Pym on the Avengers about whether this Earth this will uh, fry the Earth or tear it apart through gravity first. Either way, it's bad news, but it doesn't really have much bearing on the rest of the issue. But that's what the implication is that that's what Franklin's power is bringing to the table is that he is a kid and doesn't know about physics, so like he doesn't care about what things are physically possible or impossible. Back in Psychic Land, Onslaughtville, uh, Franklin comes up with the thought that if the two of them have the power to do like basically anything, one of those anything things they should do should be to be able to escape from Onslaught. Um, Nate Gray concedes that he's been kind of a whiner and decides to go along with the kid's plan. Back outside, Cable has located Franklin and X-Man, I guess with the psychic powers. Uh, he yells, I found the kids, which I bet would be really embarrassing to X-Man if you heard... <laughs> If you heard the alternate version of himself referring to himself as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, people all over New York City, and presumably the world, but you know how New York City-centric Marvel is, are staring up at the new sun. There's, like you mentioned, Daredevil's pals, Foggy Nelson and Karen Page. Um, they've apparently been shopping during this whole end-of-the-world sentinel siege on the city. Not like... Like they were looting a store, grabbing armfuls of food or anything. Like he's got a nice, mm-hmm. nicely packed little grocery bag. Um, she's wearing a dra- like a sundress or whatever. So they they've been having a nice time yeah. during like literally building sized robots. Uh, you know, as long as they're them. they're keeping their social distance from the sentinels, uh, <laughs> right. they could pretty much go about their lives. <laughs> uh, and then at the uh, Daily Bugle, Robbie Robertson says that they've got everyone covering this for their next day's edition. I feel like that should probably go without saying that, like, if there is a robot attack and a new sun opening up outside, you should probably divert your resources to that and not have somebody behind, like, for when the high school football scores come in. Um, but J. J. Jonah Jameson mm-hmm. says there may not be a next day for there to be an addition for. So, uh, Doom has hatched a plan to attack Onslaught. The vision will turn intangible and merge with Rogue. Uh, Wolverine will somehow pierce Onslaught's force field with pure Berserker rage. So that's like a substance. Uh, some more guys will keep it open through punching, and Rogue Vision will fly in there and smack him. Rogue asks why they should trust Doom, and he says, because I have no interest in betraying you, simply to rule a planet of cinder and ash, child. Uh, if I could just talk about one of my little pet peeves here. Oh, of course. 
the whole uh bone claw period of <laughs> wolverine's history where like somehow they end up being pretty much as powerful as his adamantium unbreakable fictional metal claws right it's like i mean that's like caveman technology <laughs> but somehow it's just as powerful uh, it's kind of ridiculous well because he's got berserker raid which is like you know i mean i've I'm a fairly novice Dungeons and Dragons player, but I know that if you throw on your Berserker Rage, you get um, additional attributes. Okay. So. <laughs> that, that checks out. Yeah. Once the force field is down, the Hulk goes up to Jean Grey and asks her to psychically turn off the Bruce Banner part of his mind so he can launch himself at Onslaught. The She does this. And the plan actually kind of works. And an almost mindless Hulk starts slamming the crap out of Onslaught. This is, I, I felt a pretty satisfying moment. Like, yeah, it involves a little bit of cleverness on the part of the heroes. And then you get to see, you know, the Hulk just doing his thing, which is pretty, pretty satisfying all the time. Mm -hmm. So the, uh, the fight is causing just all sorts of, you know, chaos and damage. Uh, the heroes are acting like this is the end of the world. Reed and Sue Richards are sharing a moment, um, suggesting that maybe this is what their entire careers have been leading up to. Uh, Vision and Quicksilver put aside their differences and sort of hold fast together. Uh, Johnny Storm saves Crystal, who is an ex-girlfriend. Uh, and Captain America sort of looks around at the field and uh, feels a certain um, comfort or clarity by knowing that like, if this is how they're going to go out, there's no one he'd rather do it beside than his old friends. So there's yeah, a lot, a lot of nice like character-based moments, and like everybody gets sort of like a little, um, a little moment to themselves. Um, mm -hmm. Deflating the mood somewhat, the thing refers to Reed and Sue's tender heart-to-heart -heart conversation as slobber in time, because he's eight, and uh, he says, "I'd rather face a whole onslaught of onslaughts than watch these two birds play Paul and Jamie." So, I think this reference would have, was obviously more timely. Um, at the time, but I still wonder what the overlap was presumed to be of 1996 X-Men readers and Mad About You viewers. <laughs> anyway, Onslaught and the Hulk are fighting, and uh, we really see why the Hulk planned to turn Banner off, because the matter that this Hulk gets without Bruce Banner's restraining influence, uh, the stronger he gets, and he gets so strong that he, his fist actually sort of seems to increase in size and mass, and basically delivers a nuclear explosion punch on Onslaught. The blast is so great that the reality warping power has split the Hulk into a mindless Hulk and a scrawny Bruce Banner. But the heroes find Onslaught's shattered armor and assume that they've won. But of course they haven't. Onslaught reveals that he has evolved into pure psionic energy. Um, this is rendered as a mass of blue bubbles. So kind of just imagine the worst bubble bath from hell. You, <laughs> you can. Reed realizes now that Onslaught is no longer bound to a physical form, and as such, he's free to spread all over the world and do whatever it is that I guess Onslaught is supposed to be doing. <laughs> Not entirely clear still at this point. Uh, Thor says if they need a vessel to contain Onslaught, then they can have his body, and he flies into the bubble bath. It seems to work a bit in that Onslaught uh, sort of growls and says that he's being drained from the inside, but they'll need more mass. The Human Torch and the Thing jump into the bubble field as well, followed by the Avengers. Again, everybody gets a nice moment. The Falcon says, I don't see anybody coming back. You realize that if we join with Onslaught, it may be the last thing we ever do. 
And Captain America says, I realize the world's at stake. Don't confuse me with details. That's mm-hmm. nice. Mm-hmm. I do actually like this. I, I So I had this issue as a kid. Like, I do think this is a good, has a lot of good moments for the characters. Yeah. Even if the plot doesn't always make um, a lot or any, any sense. Um, I was, and one thing I, I was going to talk about in there, like the ending portion is how it would read differently going into it kind of not knowing what's going to happen to the Avengers in Fantastic Four versus already knowing. Yeah. Um, so I, I could see this having more impact than that mm-hmm. uh, without that knowledge. So as the heroes are sort of pouring into the onslaught bubble mass thing, um, Reed stops a couple of X-Men and Quicksilver who are going to jump in. Uh, he explains that because Onslaught was created by Professor Xavier, that a mutant genetic pattern would revive him in some way. So, um, conveniently for Marvel editorial sales, uh, no X-Men will be making the sacrifice. The Scarlet Witch, who is, at this time, Magneto's daughter, um, is okay to go in, but she has reasons. She has a mutant hex power, and apparently that's fine. Yeah, I'd like to see some scene where they're like, where like Spider-Man and Ghost Rider and all the other hot heroes from the 90s are like considering it. And they're like, well, actually, Spider-Man can't go in because of the radioactive spider bite. <laughs> but like, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're all, they're, yeah, they're all sort of, sort of talking about like, it's like trying to get out of jury duty. Like, what are your, what are your extenuating <laughs> circumstances? <laughs> Ghost Rider's like, oh, yeah, man, I got to, I got to, I can't take time off work, you know. But, uh, yeah, we don't, we don't get that scene. Uh, then, uh, one of my favorite scenes in the entire comic is that Doom is sort of hanging back, marveling out at all the incredible energy that's being discharged. Um, as always, he will just double-cross you once the opportunity arises, so he draws out a little small, absorbing module thing that he intends to use to steal the energy and use it for himself. But it gets shot out of his hands by an arrow, Doom yells, who dares? And I I don't know that there's a lot of classic Hawkeye dialogue necessarily, but this is my favorite line that I've ever seen from a Hawkeye. Is he goes, Vic, I'm crushed. You get smacked with an arrow and you got to ask who? So well oh, yeah. done, Mark Wade, my favorite Hawkeye scene ever. Mm-hmm. I like that he's on the first name basis with Victor Von Doom. <laughs> then Iron Man flies by, swoops up Doom, and crams him into the portal because I'm not going to let Doom get away with this one. So that just leaves Reed and Sue. They were the first of the new generation of superheroes, and they will be the last. Reed tells Cyclops that the moment they're in the portal, the X-Men have to hit Onslaught with everything they've got to stop him. Reed and Sue hold hands, take a moment, and they jump in. Then the X-Men shoot I-beams, magnetic force blasts, Bishop's pink energy hand thing. Um, Again, Wolverine's very useful bone claws attacks as, as well. Bruce Banner, who is separated from the Hulk, suddenly awakens and also jumps into the fray. Um, It seems to be working, uh, and Onslaught is vanishing. It's X-Man's last chance to escape with Franklin, and he decides to be stop being so petulant and take Xavier's either physical or psychic hand and escape. The energy disperses, seemingly, and X-Man and Franklin descend into the real world. So like th- this is like the end of the threat here. Um, It's not really clear what's going on at any point really because it's just sort of like energy fields and blasts interacting with each other and Reed explains that it's good or bad uh, it's just uh, what I think is meant to be happening here is that like 
the Avengers and the FF's mass are sort of acting like a sponge and absorbing the onslaught energy, and the X-Men are actually maybe, like, killing the physical bodies of the Avengers, maybe? Uh, Do you have any any speculation there? (laughs) I think I remember this being, like, the explanation for how babies are made when I was younger. Like, makes about as much sense. (laughs) Um, But the important thing is that all the heroes needed to go into this portal thing, and then the X-Men had to shoot the portal, and now Onslaught is no more. Um, The reporters and bystanders on the streets are just as confused about what happened as I am. The fact that all the uh, major superheroes are gone now, and only the X-Men remain, um, it's implied that humans are going to assume the X-Men sort of turned on or betrayed the heroes, and they will blame mutants in general for this tragedy. Xavier tries to comfort Franklin about his parents having made the ultimate sacrifice, and Franklin sees a blue orb in the grass that's sort of like a kickball, um, that kickball is important later on. Uh, Later, X-Man and Xavier are sort of uh, surveying the wreckage, I guess, having a moment. And uh, X-Man reflects that he only met the Avengers and Fantastic Four briefly, but was awed by them. They didn't exist on his world, the Age of Apocalypse reality. And he says, quote, If they had, they might have made my home a better place. God knows they made a difference here. So that is a, I think, a touching eulogy for the uh, Marvel superheroes, even if it is given by X-Man, which is not a <laughs> not the most prestigious person to be giving the eulogy, I guess, but the the sentiment is right. Mm-hmm. So the Watcher ends his tale here, um, and we find that the person that he's been narrating this final battle to has been, um, not totally surprisingly if you've been reading the other issues, Apocalypse. Apocalypse is pleased to hear the story because it means that the Age of Heroes is over, and perhaps now we can begin an Age of Apocalypse? No? That was the name of the Ring some bells. Oh, the last story. <laughs> um, but then we see an image of Franklin with his mysterious blue orb, and the Watcher reflects that we may instead be passing into a new era of Heroes Reborn. Maybe title case Heroes Reborn. And that so long as we rem- remember the heroes, their legend will live forever. And that's where we're going to stop our uh, active coverage. We'll get to, I'll get to later, a brief recapping of what happens um, next. But for now overall thoughts on the onslaught um epic i will start with what i did like about it and so Mm -hmm. i thought that the mystery behind it where we didn't know if it was magneto in control or was it just professor x's dark side or whatnot and then and wolverine kind of finds out the, the actual details uh i thought that was pretty cool and it has like some interesting ramifications in terms of Professor X crossing this moral line by wiping Magneto's memories and so forth. Um, I like the like the stuff about the Fantastic Four and Avengers disappearing. I I knew all this stuff going in, so I think it had less impact for me. But I could imagine at the time maybe that it would have been more compelling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I, I remember like reading this when it was new already being i think maybe savvy enough to know that like this probably isn't like the last 
you know, Avengers or Fantastic Four story ever, but like it does sort of, mm-hmm. you know, at the like all the you know death doesn't mean anything in superhero comics really. So like it's all about like the moment in, at which it happens and like how that feels at the moment. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think that I think that's that's sold pretty well. Mark Wade, like I said, does a really nice job on that last um, onslaught Marvel Universe issue, giving everybody like a their own moment and they're you know going out on good terms and really sort of selling the idea that like this is a worthy way to go, I guess. Onslaught itself as like a character is kind of muddled, and I think part of it is the reason mm-hmm. that the thing that you were describing that like what he's described as is sort of shifting and sometimes it seems deliberate about like what like is it a mystery is it being revealed um there's that there was that Excalibur issue where like I feel like Warren Ellis didn't care about the rest of the story and he's just like yeah Professor X went nuts <laughs> but uh actually um so Wade's original plot and understanding for the character would be that it was just Professor X's dark side with no Magneto and like this is his dark phoenix Mm-hmm. And that onslaught would actually be trying to like unite the world, like as like a psychic, one psychic entity, but that Professor X is realize, realizing would like fry you know humanity's brain or whatever collectively. Hmm. Um. So yeah, I think I think that's one of the things that like Mark Wade was sort of angry about and why he left X Men and never returned because like I think he had this idea of like this is going to be you know Professor X the dream goes wrong, and this will be like a good character thing. And I can see how, yep. like if that was your if that was your plan like hearing that like oh well he's not all bad because Magneto made him bad because a little psychic goblin got into Professor X's energy field. I can see how that would, that would feel like a a watering down if your whole plan was to do evil Professor X. Mm-hmm. Yeah, on a, a similar note, I feel like so the X Men are really central to this comic, um, mm-hmm. but they kind of kick things off but there there aren't really any kind of ramifications for them it's like the avengers and fantastic four are altered forever uh, i guess humanity now blames them for blames the x-men for the other heroes disappearing which means they're kind of hated but they already were pretty much yeah. so it just seems like a weird shifting of who we should be focused on in terms of the characters to, Oh, actually it's going to be about the fantastic four and Avengers and mm-hmm. the X-Men are kind of peripheral in a way. I don't know. No, I think, I think that makes, that makes sense because like this was sold as like the big X-Men event and the X-Men do sort of become like supporting characters about halfway through. So I'm going to enter nitpick mode here. I get the idea that like they didn't really have a lot of time to come up with a plan because once Onslaught unveils his final bubble bath form, um, they don't have you know time to respond to it. But they really put all their eggs into the basket of like everybody jump into the portal, and the X Men can shoot us, and everybody is like sold. Mm-hmm. <laughs> don't give this a second thought. I like this plan. Reed and Sue have like no problem with like leaving their sun behind you know if this plan works like yeah plan works and like they have no nobody to take care of their son and i get that the world is at stake but you maybe think about that i guess i've never put right. been put in the situation where my wife and i have to decide if we're both going to go into the psychic you know portal energy thing and mm-hmm. leave our kids behind but i'd like to think that one of us would be like well 
you can flip a coin to see who stays behind. I mean, like, again, if right. you need, like, a certain critical level of mass to contain the Onslaught entity, one of you could stay out and, like, you call Daredevil. <laughs> he will swoop in into that portal for you, make up the difference. Oh, yeah. He's, like, willing to, to do anything to be a part of <laughs> this whole situation. Yep, sure. He's just, he's just sitting, you know, in the costume, like, ready to put on the mask, but mm-hmm. the whole time nobody... So, yeah. Anyway, the whole... All of this problem would have been solved by calling Daredevil, as most as most problems would be. <laughs> Definitely. Overall, like, how... What is your takeaway on Onslaught? Um, I... I would say I didn't necessarily dislike it. I think it read pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of it blended together for reasons that you, that you kind of alluded to. Yeah, a lot of the individual issues are just sort of like everybody sort of sits around talking. You fight a sentinel. You make an ineffective attack on Onslaught. Mm-hmm. Back to start. <laughs> so it is it, yeah. it is sort of like run into one another. Like if you actually like when we are when we we're summarizing the plot. There's very little to actually summarize. And there's like a lot of weird buildup and anticlimax. So Apocalypse being in it throughout, like you feel like he's going to play a bigger role and then he pretty much does nothing. And it's like the same thing with this anti-psychic armor. Like, I don't even know if you mentioned it in the last issue. Right. Um, The the implication is that like Iron Man and stuff sort of built things into their armors and stuff. But yeah, it, there was a lot of build-up for that, and it didn't really pay off, unless it was in one of the many other issues that we did not cover, because there are, like, 40 of these tie-ins, so. Mm-hmm. It's possible in X-Factor, everything was revealed to your satisfaction. Okay. <laughs> for for all we know. I will have to uh, seek those out, but... You will, yeah, it you was, will not. Yeah, it was not <laughs> terrible, I thought. Um, what, what about you? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know... A, Crossovers by their nature are pretty just like commercial churn. Right. I mean, I, I think I think like at the like at the time when I was reading some of these, not the complete epic or whatever, but like reading some of them, it was like in the moment it's pretty exciting because you don't know what's going to happen next. Mm-hmm. If you go back and read it as a story, it is just like a lot of like big panels of people with the teeth gritted, getting ready to do something and then not really accomplishing anything. But yeah, you know, these right. these these were not meant to be read by us. <laughs> On a podcast in our our digital form, you know, twenty years later. Okay. But, yeah. 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 So onslaught not not the worst thing you can read, but I guess I don't recommend it unless you are feeling particularly nostalgic. And why would you these days for for the for a younger time in your life? So uh, I promised you I would reveal the secrets of what happens after Onslaught. Um, Very briefly, Professor Xavier, his power seemingly depleted, allows himself to be taken into government custody for whatever it is he actually did. I mean, (laughs) he feels responsible in some way. So humanity does indeed blame the X-Men and mutants in general for the apparent deaths of the Fantastic Four and Avengers. Anti-mutant hysteria gets even hotter, culminating in the next year's summer X-Men crossover, Operation Zero Tolerance involving a guy called Bastion and his prime sentinels. Um, I didn't read that one. I think it resulted in the X-Men mansion getting trashed. Also, I do not believe this was a particularly beloved crossover. <laughs> so if you would, if you wondered, like, does it get worse than Onslaught? Apparently it does. 
Without the Avengers, crime rates go up, both in New York City, making things tougher for street-level guys like Spider-Man and the much-neglected Daredevil, but also on a global scale. A new group of superheroes called the Thunderbolts tries to fill the void, and in one of the all-time greatest twists in comics history, the first issue ends with the revelation that the Thunderbolts are actually Baron Zemo and the Masters of Evil in disguise, trying to gain the public's trust. Perhaps more importantly, the weird blue orb that Franklin Richards carries around with him like a ball turns out to be a pocket universe unconsciously created by Franklin himself to keep his family and friends safe. In that pocket universe, Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld make updated 90s versions of the, of the Fantastic Four and Avengers that everyone hates and quickly get abandoned. Um, and after a year of that reboot, there was a whole nother complicated storyline called Heroes Return involving Franklin Richards and his orb, the Cosmic Celestials, merging the separated Hulk and Bruce Banner components and bringing the Fantastic Four and Avengers back to the regular Marvel Universe. Thanks to the attention they got from the Heroes Reborn stunt, plus kind of like a new Coke thing of making everybody miss the original characters by replacing them with crappier versions, um, the FF and Avengers books are once again restored to their place as... Um, high-profile uh, books and characters in the Marvel line, and they get much better relaunches spearheaded by writers including Mark Wade and Kurt Busiek. So we have a happy ending there. Joseph turns out to be a clone of <laughs> Magneto. I, I think that they sort of lost interest in that mystery and just sort of wanted to wrap that up so the real Magneto could, could come back. And X-Man, he and Spider-Man became sort of buddies and hung out a bit in 1997. <laughs> so... The 90s were a weird time for a lot of us. They were no exception. Yeah. Uh, so without further ado, let's put Onslaught in the rearview mirror. Back issue bin of history. Mm-hmm. And turn our attentions to the much more pressing business at hand, which is Cannon Fodder. sequence in which we try to stump each other with obscure and bizarre comics trivia i guess i will kick things off i do have a magneto centric question so all right i will toss that out to begin question one magneto has been a thorn in the x-men's side all the way back to x-men number one in 1963 However, his power set hasn't been the same throughout his entire villainous and at times heroic career. What power did Magneto demonstrate in X-Men 5 and 6 that has subsequently been dropped from his power set? A. The ability to cover his body in an ultra-thin but nigh-impenetrable metallic skin. B. The power to create a psychic projection of himself that others can see. C, the ability to use electromagnetic pulse waves to hypnotize. Or D, the power to magnetically charge a person, person to stick to another person. Um, I feel like he might have done... It's either the psychic thing because they weren't really sure what mutants were or the hypnotize... I feel like magnetic hypnotism is something that Stanley would have gone to as sort of hand-waving away. Is it the magnetic hypnotism? It was actually the... It was B, the psychic projection of himself. If I can drop a nerdy side note. You may. There was a... 
an X-Men role-playing game or a Marvel role-playing game in the 90s. And mm-hmm. I remember that astral projection, I think, was listed as one of his powers. And it was always <laughs> just confusing to me, not having familiarity with those issues. So. Mm-hmm. My first question. I mentioned that X-Men and Spider-Man uh, struck up a, an unlikely friendship following the story. How did these two meet? Is it A, X-Man gains a cult following as a street prophet in the park, who Peter Parker is assigned to take photos of. Peter invites X-Man back to Christmas Eve dinner at his and Mary Jane's house. And X-Man repays Peter by giving him a nice dream about Aunt May, then thought to be dead, telling Peter to learn to forgive himself for his many misfortunes. Is it B, X-Man, himself a product of genetic tampering by Mr. Sinister in the Age of Apocalypse universe, is naturally psychically drawn to genetically modified individuals like himself, which pulls him into the very end of the Spider-Man clone saga, who's able to help track down any remaining Peter Parker and Gwen Stacy clones and re-outfit them with new identities and lives. Is it C, needing money, X-Man gets a job as a delivery truck driver for the Daily Bugle. Once at the Bugle, his telepathic powers detect that someone in the building is going to try to murder J. Jonah Jameson. It turns out to be the chameleon, Disguised as Peter Parker, which leads to a classic misunderstanding fight. X-Man tries to make it up to Peter later by telepathically convincing Jameson to give Peter a raise. Or is it D, the ninja clan known as The Hand, hired to bring Dr. Octopus back from the dead, kidnap X-Man and force him to retrieve the villain's psyche from the astral plane. Spider-Man stumbles across the operation but fails to prevent X-Man from reuniting Dr. Octopus's mind, but they defeat the ninjas and celebrate by getting calamari at an Italian restaurant. I'm torn between B and D. Um, I'm going to go with D. The Ninja Clan? Mm-hmm. It was actually A. He has oh. He's a uh, street prophet that Peter takes a picture of. Uh, they, they, they have some bro time together, talk about X-Man's pretty crummy life and Peter Parker going through a lot of hard times. Mm-hmm. And he makes Aunt May appear to him in a dream. It was a Christmas miracle. The the issue was actually called "Twas the Night Before X Man." <laughs> lovely, lovely. Question two: Nineteen sixty two's Adventure Comics number two ninety six features a story set in the world created by Superman's antagonist Bizarro. Which of the following, for lack of a better word, bizarre events did not happen in that story? A Bizarro is acquitted of a crime due to too much evidence condemning him. (laughs) B. Bizarro Jimmy Olsen is found innocent of murder and is therefore sentenced to be executed. C. Bizarro watches an episode of 1960s legal drama Perry Mason then starts practicing law under the name Mary Payson. (laughs) Or D. Bizarro Perry White fakes his own murder to create a dull news story. Which one of these was not? True, or which one was yep. one? Ooh. Um, they all seem pretty plausible. The one I'm just going to throw out Jimmy Olsen being innocent of murder and then being executed. Because <laughs> that seems pretty hardcore. <laughs> uh, sorry, let me let me repeat that. Oh, sure. Found innocent of murder and is therefore sentenced to be executed. Yeah, I'm I'm still I'm still gonna I'm still gonna go with that one. Okay. Uh it was actually a Bizarro is acquitted of a crime due to too much evidence condemning him. Oh. I believe the the story's title was The Case of the Super Loony Lawyer. 
Okay. Question number two on your end. In a 1998 X-Men storyline, the mutant detecting computer Cerebro gains sentience and creates its own team of X-Men by using nanotechnology and stuff, I guess? Science bits to combine existing mutants into basically a team of mashups. So, for example, there's a character called the Grey King who wears a phoenix-like costume but also resembles Sebastian Shaw of the Hellfire Club, the Black King. So it's like Jean Grey, Black King, uh, Grey Mm -hmm. King, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Which of the following mashups was not on Cerebro's team? Is it A, Rapture, a blue-skinned nun with wings and a sword, mashed up from Nightcrawler, Archangel, and Mystique? B, Chaos, who shoots concentric circles of energy from his glowing red eye, mashed up from Cyclops and Havoc? Landslide, a southerner with animal strength and agility, mashed up from Beast, Sabretooth, and Rogue? Or D, Raindance, a weather-manipulating 90s techno-raver, Mashed up from Storm and the Dazzler. Hmm. That's between D and C for me. D seems the least plausible, but I am actually going to go with C. Landslide, the southerner with animal strength and agility. I'm mm-hmm. afraid he's canon. It is, the, <laughs> it is in fact, my uh, weather-manipulating techno-raver. Uh. A worthy addition to the Marvel line of characters, if anybody wants to reach out to me to write, <laughs> to write that story. Mm-hmm. I have to get in every episode that we do I have to make one plug for turning my cannon fodder fake answers into actual story Marvel have not yeah. gotten back to me but maybe I just haven't been repeating the email address often enough well you're really making a mistake by creating these characters since they're <laughs> going to be owned by Marvel so you might as well just kind of keep those under your hat image comics if you would like to, <laughs> to reach out to me and create an entirely new line of superheroes based on uh, answers that I made up to fake trivia questions. You know where to get in touch. So we were we both 0 for 2? Yeah, we are, we are whiffing it today. I think that might be the first time that's ever happened. Let's try to move on from that personal shame. <laughs> With some recommendations. Well, we've been doing this podcast for a while. And, um, you know, I try to keep it sort of close to the vest. But I feel like you might have begun to suspect that I sometimes prefer older comics to contemporary ones. I don't know if you've, mm. if you've picked up on that at all. I, you know, it's a very subtle hints I've been dropping over the, over the course of our tenure here. Yeah. Um, this expresses itself in an appreciation for Back Issue Magazine, published by Tomorrow's Press. That's T-W-O, Morrow's. Um, I recently uh, ordered a bunch of Back Issues from them, of Back, back Issues of Back Issue. Um, it's a glossy, full-color magazine dedicated to comics of the 70s, 80s, and sometimes the 90s. In other words, a magazine created with laser precision, precision for an audience of me personally. Um, each issue has a, a specific focus. Sometimes it's a character, it's character based, like a spotlight on Flash and Green Lantern in the seventies, or the Fantastic Four, or the Marvel monster heroes. Sometimes it's based on a theme like superhero families or famous unrealized and unpublished pro- comics projects. There's an upcoming issue on legacy characters that we'll have a look at Wally West as the Flash, which I am really looking forward to. It has uh, high-quality, well-researched, well-written articles, sometimes written by the creators from the time themselves. Um, It looks terrific with a lot of uh, reproduced pages of original art and uh, other stuff from the time. 
this is, let's be honest, like a pretty niche publication. I, I admit that. And I think um, like a lot of publishers, they were hit hard by the pandemic. Um, they're running uh, sales pretty much constantly now trying to get people to read. Um, so if this sounds at all like something that you might be interested in, I sincerely recommend supporting the magazine. Um, check out the catalog at tomorrows.com. That's T-W-O-M-O-R-R-O-W-S.com and see what issues uh, look like they might be up your alley. They're also available in digital editions for uh, you young people with your gizmos and tablets. That sounds excellent. I've never heard of that publication before, but it definitely sounds like something that I would be into as well. Uh, I'm going to recommend a far less obscure publication, and it's Silver Surfer Masterworks Volume 1 by somebody named Stan Lee, uh, along with John Buscema. So everybody, I think, is is familiar with the Lee Kirby Galactus saga and the Silver Surfer's first appearances in that. So I think, you know, that gets a lot of attention. And maybe his solo adventures are a little less uh, acclaimed, or at least recently they seem to be not as... um, heralded uh pun unintended (laughs) but um so this is the first five issues of his solo series and stanley has in the past said that this is his favorite character to write of all time um basically the the premise is silver surfer has now been banished to earth by galactus and can no longer roam the galaxies which is especially tragic because his one real ambition before he became the Silver Surfer was to roam the spaceways as an explorer. And he's a tragic figure throughout this storyline, brooding over being confined to Earth and constantly lamenting the warfare and poverty and suffering he sees. This is first published in 1968. You can really get the sense that Stan Lee was this was kind of his personal reaction to what he was witnessing in the late 60s as American society and the world seemed to be descending into violence and greater division. Uh, No reason why this book would particularly connect with me at this moment in time, but um, I, I did find it really affecting for that reason. There's some beautiful classic art by John Buscema. Uh, Kirby rightly gets a lot of kudos for his cosmic sagas, but Buscema does just fine in that department as well. It also features the first appearance of Mephisto, which I I didn't know that he was first that he first appeared in a Silver Surfer story. Also, the collection ends with an issue of Not Brand Eck, which is a Marvel parody series at the time which has a story where Roy Thomas affectionately parodies the Silver Surfer and Stan's kind of delightfully overblown writing style. And it's genuinely funny. Um, So I really liked how you have this classy collection of an important Marvel character. And at the end, there's an issue that basically takes the piss out of the, the character. It's like if you had the Criterion Collection of Citizen Kane ending with like that Simpsons episode where they where they parody <laughs> it uh, using Mr. Burns. So it's all in all uh, very very fun and and I think engaging read. Well, I think that will about do us for today. If you like the podcast, subscribe on your podcasting app of choice. 
write us a review on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, neighbors, uh, family. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at, at IndefensibleInc and on Facebook. Email us with uh, suggestions for things you'd like us to cover or very lucrative deals to turn my cannon fodder answers into publishable characters at indefensibleinc at gmail.com. But until next time, I have been Justin Zyduck. And I've been Ryan McClure. And have a good rest of your day. Bye. Bye.